Welcome to the Fly Fishing Show. This is going to be a good one. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. In today's episode, I interview John Shuey, one of the most prolific fly fishing writers of our time. John talks and breaks down the history of steelhead fly fishing, the connection to the gold rush, and how his passion and ethic put him in his current position as the editor-in-chief of Northwest Fly Fishing Magazine. He gives his take on where print media is heading, talks about his next book, and makes the comparison between classic steelhead and modern steelhead flies. So, without further ado, here's John Shuey from MatchTheHatch.com. How's it going, John? Uh, it's going great. Thank you, Dave. Good. It's, it's really good to have you on here. I've, uh, we've been talking a little bit, uh, trying to set this up and, you know, you're obviously a a big name and, you know, and fly fishing and steelhead and publishing. And it's, uh, you know, definitely an honor to have you on here and chat about a little bit of steelhead fishing, if that sounds good to you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And sorry about the trouble in tracking me down, but that's my life as a nomad. So, oh yeah, good deal. No, it's all good. It's, uh, we'll have about an hour here or so to, to dig into some questions and, uh, see, see if we can bring up some good stuff here. So I, you know, I usually get started just talking about a little bit on, on your history. Maybe you could tell us how you got into fly fishing and steelhead fishing and how the whole, you know, I mean, you're editor of a a major, you know, group of magazines and you've got a ton of books out there. And I mean, just a long history. Maybe you could tell us how you got to where you are today. Well, sure. I mean, the uh, beginning was way back in Eastern Idaho. Uh, when I was growing up, my dad was a real estate appraiser and, uh, at uh, when I was about six or seven years old, part of the territory that he was working was the uh, the real estate up in Island Park, which is uh, just shy of getting into Yellowstone National Park, but on the Idaho side. And Island mm-hmm. Park is where the, the famous Henry's Fork is located and the famous Henry's Lake and a variety of other waters. So it's really, really famous fly fishing country. Mm-hmm. And uh, during those years, dad would often take me with him and, and I would get to, uh, do a little fly fishing in the, in the evenings with him after he was done at work. So, you know, some of the places I very first cast a fly included the Henry's fork. So pretty good oh, upbringing. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, a few years after that, we moved South, uh, a little farther South in Eastern Idaho and, uh, lived, Oh, a, a number of miles outside of Pocatello up in the Hills and out behind our subdivision was uh, all BLM and Forest Service property with half a dozen different streams that drained out of the mountains, and every one of them was loaded with uh, wild cutthroat trout. So, in those in that time and place, you know, nobody thought anything of turning kids loose just to go wander the mountains. And uh, so, me and my my best friends did, and and uh, spent a whole lot of time fly fishing those those little cutthroat creeks up there. Hmm. Of course, in those days, there was no such thing as catch and release. So, yeah, uh, we mostly just filled our freezer but in, in, in retrospect i feel a little guilty about some of the, the prodigious numbers of trout i killed but sure. uh, it was a different different time and place so. oh yeah huh. yeah and then you know ultimately i uh, my family moved to oregon and uh, that's and just a, a couple of years after we moved here i almost accidentally discovered steelhead and i say accidentally because i you know i'd heard about them read about them and uh decided maybe I would go try for them, but I hedged my bets by also picking a, a river that, you know, had a few trout in it. But the first thing I hooked was a steelhead hmm. and uh, that that's a good way of getting addicted to it pretty quick. Wow. Yeah. And so when I went to college at the university of Oregon, I spent the summers, uh, working for, uh, David McNeese's fly shop in Salem. And that was at a time in the in the mid 1980s that turned out to be a very formative time in the evolution of steelhead flies and steelhead fly design. And uh, you know I was front and center to all of it, which was pretty mm-hmm. pretty neat, especially in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, a steelhead river that that was 30 minutes from the door, a summer run steelhead river. And uh, so you know every evening, myself oftentimes with Forrest Maxwell were uh, up fishing the river, and you know after years and years and hours and hours of doing that you know you uh, hopefully you learn or unlearn a few things along the way hmm. that and and that was in which town was that you were in that's in Sa- that was in salem oh in salem uh-huh. yeah for sure yep huh. mm-hmm. so that's how it all started and you know i I think my first season on the north santiam was you 1983 or 84 so 
it's been a lot of years. Oh yeah. No, it's cool. I was just, uh, yeah, I was just recently down in Eugene at, uh, one of the fly shops there and chatting with, uh, chatting with the owner about fishing in. We were talking about the, uh, the North Umqua and, and steelhead and everything. And it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, come a long ways. Do you see, you know, you're talking about kind of in the eighties and in those formative days, do you see kind of the changes up till where we are today? Do, do you see a lot of big changes or how, how does it all look to you as you look back on it? Well, in terms of the, the fishing itself, you know, the, the thing, the biggest change has been the, the, uh, I guess it's people call it a, an evolution, but really it's a, a revitalization of the two-handed rods. It, it's an, it's sort of unfortunate that that a lot of people in the Northwest think that we've kind of invented something with two-handed rods for steelhead. But the fact of the matter is that if you go back to the 1890s, there were people fishing two-handed rods for steelhead on the Eel River in California. Mm. So you know, it's not we haven't anything new. We've just kind yep. of re, rediscovered it, I guess. Um, but in terms of uh, the flies themselves. You know, certainly there's been a lot of changes. And, uh, you know, when I, when I look back on it, I realized that uh, one of the driving forces in the, in the evolution of steelhead fly styles was happening right there at McNeese's Fly Shop, uh, right in that, at that time during the early and mid-80s. And that had a lot to do with the owner himself, Dave McNeese, because he was such a uh, creative and inventive and artistic fly tire that he really was the first to, to make a uh, major production out of applying fine fly tying techniques used by Atlantic salmon tires and streamer East coast streamer tires to the genre of tying steelhead flies. Hmm. And so, and I say, I say among the first, I mean, there was certainly Sid Glasso was doing that even before McNeese came along, but McNeese was influenced by him and a few of those others that, that uh, were in Sid's generation. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, thereafter, you remember this is a time before the internet Right. And uh, before, you know, before, before, barely before computers, in fact. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so the dispensing information was done the old fashioned way. You know, there were, it was magazine articles and books and word of mouth and people visiting the shop and our catalog business and that kind of thing. But, uh, by the end of those McNeese years, I'd started to sort of appreciate how, how we had managed to sort of change the genre a little bit, sort of push it along into the realm of more artistic steelhead flies. And, then came, you know, along the heels of that came the uh, introduction of steelhead flies that I always considered a whole lot uglier, which were some of the, the leech-style fly, weighted leech-style flies that came along. But, you know, what sprung from those and sort of a, a synthesis of those those sort of ugly rabbit strip leeches and that kind of stuff that, that came about, mm -hmm. a synthesis of those and some of the more artistic flies is what we're seeing now in, in the modern intruder-style flies. You know, we're finally seeing a lot of artistic vision you know, put into those style of flies instead of just, you know, a clump of fur and a, and a lead dumbbell eye on a hook. Right. Yeah. That's... So it was interesting to, you know, it was interesting to live through the, the, uh, sort of that, that formative evolution of steelhead flies back in the eighties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so now we're, yeah, we're here today and you know, we're, yeah, like you said, we're, we've got all sorts of tires out there. Some people that, yeah, I mean, there's people that are just tying flies and that that's all they do is tie flies. You know, they're not even, which is real. Yeah. Which is real common amongst Atlantic salmon fly. Tires. Oh, it is. Huh? So there's so many of them that are just incredible fly tires, but they never, they, you know, oh, fishing's wow. really not of an interest to them. Interesting. Yeah. I, I yeah. Guess, yeah. I, and so, so the history now, just thinking about steelhead fly fishing, you talked a lot there. Is there anything we're missing here you want to add just to give a, maybe a, a quick perspective of, of kind of where, where we came from and, or did you cover most of it there? Do you think? Well, I mean, there's a, there's, you know, I've, 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 uh, dove into the history of steelhead fly fishing substantially and, you know, I could spend hours talking about it, yeah. but you know, I will say this, that we, uh, what, what a lot of people don't realize is that the founding river, essentially, of steelhead fly fishing as a codified pursuit was the Eel River in Northern California. And in the in the uh, late 1880s, early 1890s, there was a cadre of anglers led by a fellow named John Ben, uh, who was a commercial fly tire in San Francisco, who started making annual autumn trips up to the Eel River, which in those days was not such, you didn't just jump in a car and drive up there, hmm. obviously. Um, but one of the things that is important to recognize about those that time in that place was that today we have an escapement of about 1500 total steelhead out of the out of the eel river and that's winter steelhead but in john ben's day the estimated escapement could have been as high as 150,000 hmm. and that included at least three and probably four different races two different races of winter run steelhead you know winter winter run spawning life history and and in fact two different races of summer run steelhead 
which don't exist anymore. The summer run steelhead are extinct on the Eel River. Right. And yet it was those it was those fall running summer life history steelhead that this sport was founded on. And they don't exist anymore. Right. And so I think it's one of those things that we have to kind of keep in mind going forward. Uh, you know, I hate to I hate to see the baseline shift, meaning that when we start talking about 1500 steelhead in the Eel River being some sort of recovery, wow. I have to remind people that what's 1500 compared to 150,000. Yeah. So that's what I call the shifting baseline because people aren't aware of the fact that in no. the founding days of the sport, the Eel River was just prodigious. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the same thing with a lot of uh, a lot of things in in the natural world. You know, people you see it as it is today, and you you forget that you know three hundred years ago things were a heck of a lot different than they are. Absolutely, the, the streams in, in your backyard. Well, yeah. I think the other thing about the history, you know, on, on a little more positive note, one of the interesting things about the history of steelhead fly fishing is it's actually directly tied to the uh, the gold rush of eighteen forty nine in a, in a way. Hmm. At least I can I can make it tied to that, mm-hmm. and that is that you know. Instantly, overnight, 300,000 people went to California in one year, in less than a year. And those 300,000 people were all attracted by the gold rush, by the reports of gold down at Sutter's Mill. And when you have 300,000 people coming from the East Coast out to the West Coast in California, well, certainly amongst those people are going to be some people who have been fly fishing for native brook trout back east. And they're going to bring their tackle with them. They're going to right. bring what they knew. And what they knew were the the little traditional wet flies that were being used for brook trout at that time along with a few people that were coming from from the british isles who were bringing a few of their atlantic salmon flies that were in use at that time and so the very first steelhead flies were nothing more than the wet flies that people had had known from the east coast and Mm -hmm. uh, very very quickly they started discovering this bizarre fish that swam in some of the rivers in in the northern half of california that was sort of like a salmon because it ran out of salt water into the rivers, but unlike a salmon, did not die after spawning. So in a bout of pragmatism, they called them the salmon trout. Right. And the, the uh, taxonomy on the so-called salmon trout wasn't settled until the 20th century. Of course, we call them steelhead today. Mm-hmm. But uh, back in those days, you know, in the, in the very first days of steelhead fly fishing, they were swinging traditional East Coast wet flies and found them very effective. Yep. And I always joke, you know, one of the one of the earliest, most effective steelhead flies of all was a fly called the Parmachini Bell, hmm. which is a beautiful little uh, yellow and red and white brook trout fly invented in, in New England in the 1880s. And up until, oh, up until the harrowing flies started taking over in the uh, 1930s, the uh, Parmachini Bell was one of the most popular of all steelhead flies. And it hmm. was always going to be on somebody's top 10 list if you were asked what, their, what the 10 best steelhead flies were. And, and then all of a sudden... For 70-some years, the Parmachine Bell never touched a fish. And, you know, I always ask, well, is that because something, did the fish themselves decide that too many of them have been hooked on a Parmachine Bell and they were <laughs> going to be capricious and never touch another one? Yeah. Or did something else happen? Well, what happened was everybody quit fishing it. Yep. And uh, in 2014, while I was working on a, a book called Classic Steelhead Flies and reading about the history of this fly, I thought, how much fun would it be just to fish that pattern all summer long? And uh, oddly enough, it turns out that it's as good a steelhead fly as it ever was. It's just that nobody fished it for 70 or 80 years. So. Nice. And that's about all you need to know about what, what steelheads see in a fly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of a neat little episode. And it's kind of fun to bring it back full circle like that, to pick a fly that was so prominent 80, 90 years ago and uh, completely huh. fell, it completely got lost, fell out of favor, never was used again. And then turn that on its head and, and go out and catch fish on that fly. Yeah, that is, that's a cool story. I'll uh, make sure to leave an, uh, a note here with the, or with a photo of, of that. If I can find a picture of that fly in the, uh, the show notes, it's for this episode, it's going to be at wetflyswing.com slash John Shuey. I'll have all the notes here from everything we talk about with links today. Um, cool. but yeah, that's, that's, that's an awesome story. And it just gets back to the point of, which is a great one, especially when you're talking to new people getting into steelhead fish, that's, you know, it's the fly isn't as important as a lot of other things when you're trying to find your first fish out there. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the, the fly doesn't matter. I mean, if you're going to tell me that, that a steelhead is going to reject or accept your skunk based on whether it has a calf tail wing or a polar bear wing or mm-hmm. a, or a, a green butt or not a green butt, then I'm going to have to have a discussion about logical thought processes with you, probably. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the thing about it is people, especially beginners, they, they 
can be tempted to place too much faith in the fly. And some of that comes from a background as trout anglers. You know, if you're on the Henry's Fork where I grew up and there's a, a hatch of uh, Pseudocleon mayflies, you know, size 24s, hmm. and you find a 20-inch trout who is only feeding on the crippled duns, not the upright wing duns and not the emergers, but being ultra selective, well, you better have the right fly. Right. You can't just throw anything at them. But steelhead are a different beast. Yep. And, you know, it's uh, far from, you know, the fact that I, I, I believe that, you know, that for want of a particular color or shade or a particular feather or, or hair, you're going to render a fly less or more effective is absurd to me. But that does not mean that I don't enjoy the process of creating new flies and fishing new flies and, and finding new flies to catch fish on. In fact, to me, it's an invitation. Mm-hmm. It's an invitation because I know that anything I produce out of my vice has an equal chance. And, you know, it's not, there was a, I think it was in Jay's, Jay Nichols' new book mm. where they quote, quoted me about this subject and then said that they sort of take exception to that opinion. No, but yeah. I'm, I think I might have missed, I, I think that, you know, if they're talking about fly styles, that's one thing, you know, to tell me that, to tell someone that an intruder fly that's four inches long, fished for winter steelhead, is no more or less effective than a size eight skunk float, swinging on a floating line. Well, that's absurd. I mean, of course, you're going to have better chances with that intruder fish deep in the flow. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to saying, if you tie that intruder with a pink collar versus an orange collar, that makes it more effective or less effective. To me, that's that's ridiculous. And the proof is in the pudding, because uh, in that beautiful book he did about the modern steelhead flies, Mm -hmm. if there was one particular fly that was more effective than all the rest, then his book and all of our books would be about one fly, not (laughs) about 300 flies. That's right. That's right. So, you know, that, so to me, it, what, what really matters is when you tie a fly on the end of the leader, you better believe in it. Yeah, that's exactly. Com- confidence is the biggest, the biggest Absolutely. factor. Yeah. And yeah I, you got, you got to believe in the fly. I, uh, I had Jay on, uh, Jay on the show in episode three. So we, uh, I can't remember exactly. We, we covered a bunch of different, uh, had a pretty good time, but yeah, that, that is a good point. And, uh, and I haven't actually, um, read that book. I've, I've read a lot of your books and I've definitely, um, seen a lot of them and you got a lot of stuff out there. If you, you know, think about the history, maybe this is the first part of it. I don't know if you have a book or, I mean, I know you have books on history, but is there a resource you would point somebody if they wanted to get like the full steelhead fly fishing kind of history, or is there anything like that out there? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's sort of a litany. I mean, but it starts with the, I mean, I, I guess in the modern area, it kind of starts with the Trey Combs works. And I mean, I could point to a lot of different references, but in terms of uh, finding references that sort of uh, encapsulate all those older references. Then you start with what Trey Combs did and you start with the, you know, one of the books that, that he wasn't, he does not well known for was his very first book on steelhead flies and steelhead fishing. But right there after he came up with the book called steelhead fly fishing and flies. And to me, that little thin volume that's been around forever and been through many printings is still his finest work. Yeah. He published a much larger book, uh, you know, an inch thick, more than an inch thick, a book, I think it was just called Steelhead Fly Fishing or something like that. And it was great. I mean, it had all kinds of wonderful information and and great tires and great flies. But his first book was, well, actually a second book, Steelhead Flies and Fly Fishing, was so groundbreaking because he did his diligent work in terms of of trying to dig up the history. And at the time he was doing that, you know, it's, it's, uh, you have to remember there was no, there was no computer, there was no internet. No. And so he had to do it the old fashioned way. You know, he had to, to talk to people and follow lines of re- follow lines of uh, paths of, of, of examination. He had to seek out libraries and, you know, just do it the, the good old fashioned hard way. And he did. And, uh, you know, I think we we owe him a, a debt for that because he preserved so much information that could have been lost. And uh, so that's where, you know, I think if you're going to examine the, uh, the history of steelhead fly fishing and flies, that's a great place to start. And. When uh, many years later, I hatched the idea of doing this book that I call Classic Steelhead Flies that came out through Stackpole a couple of years ago. To me, the first place I had to start was to get Trey's blessing. Hmm. And so I talked to him about what I was going to do, and he was fully on board with it. And I really appreciated that because mm-hmm. I knew that that one of my one of my sources had to be his book or his books. But I also knew that because of the avenues of research open to me in the age of the Internet, were far broader than what he had available to him. So I knew it was entirely possible that I could find bits of information that might not agree with some of his history. And that did in fact happen. And it was one little bit of information. When I pointed it out to him, he said, you know, I'll have to look at my notes, but you might be right. Hmm. So in other words, his ego never got involved. 
You know, he, yeah. he was just, he, he's just more interested in, in getting the story right. And I also asked him at that time, I said, you know, Trey, I, I'm not going to feel good about producing a book that I consider to, to stand on the shoulders of your work unless uh, not only do you give it your full blessing, but you write the foreword for me. And he did. <laughs> and so that was great. So that book, Classic Steelhead Flies, goes into tremendous detail about the history of uh, fly fishing for steelhead and the history of the flies themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great book, and most of those flies uh, or patterns you tied in in that book. Yeah, I tied almost everything. I mean, I had a, also included are some flies from my collection, some flies tied by the likes of Walt Johnson and Cal Bird and some of those kind of people. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure that they got front and center treatment as well. Yeah, and you know, and then it was, I thought it was kind of neat that that Jay Nichols came out with that book, Modern Steelhead Flies, shortly after Classic Steelhead Flies came out, because you know that's where the that's where the evolution of steelhead flies has gone. You know, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that the the style of flies, the intruder style of flies, for lack of a better word, you know, that's sort of the popular genre right now. Yeah. And the, those flies, as demonstrated in, in Jay's book, those flies have reached the level of, 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 of art. You know, they're no longer just, like I said, ugly lumps of rabbit fur and ostrich roll with a big lead dumbbell on them. <laughs> People are, are tying really attractive, uh, well thought out, you know, very pretty flies. And the fact that a Steelhead is just as likely to grab a pretty fly as he is an ugly fly. It makes me want to fish pretty flies. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully a lot of the other people do do. So, so that was, you know, to me, that's kind of uh, uh, a nice follow-up in a way to my book to have his come out that, that sort of uh, traces the brand new lineage of steelhead flies. And I fully acknowledge the fact that I'm a dinosaur and probably a dying breed. But, you know, that's okay with me. I mean, I, I enjoy fishing the classic flies. I, I enjoy tying them, and that's just what I do. Yeah. No, they're great. I'm, I'm more definitely my, my, uh, I'm more of a classic. You talk about my style. I'm, I'm more classic style. That's, that's my background. And I'm a little bit later the game to some of the newer stuff. I mean, it's, it's definitely fun. I enjoy tying a lot of different things, but, um, no, those are, it's really cool to hear the history. Uh, thinking about, you know, just your whole history and publishing. I mean, what is it, you know, kind of the, where you're at as editor. I mean, how did, how does that, you know, where does that passion come from? It must be just a ton of work with all these publications you've done over the years and the books and. uh, Well, I mean it, yeah, I mean it is and it isn't Dave. I mean, it's, uh, there's certainly a lot of hours involved, but it's, it's, it's how you organize your work, you know, and I've, even though I've never been the best organized person in some aspects of my life, when it comes to understanding the process of, uh, you know, staying on top of the magazines and staying on top of the books I want to write, I understand how to, how to, you know, organize my work. And so as far as the magazines, you know, if if you're going to be a journalist and you're going to work in a magazine or newspaper business, uh, you just have to learn to accept the deadline pressure and Mm -hmm. not let it bother you, you know, because it's always there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the neat things about our magazine group is that we're a a dispersed company. So my art director lives up in uh, North Bend, Washington. Our publisher lives over in Winthrop, Washington. Our advertising manager lives in uh, central Washington. I live down in Oregon. So. Mm -hmm you know, we're able to, to do that model thanks to modern technology. And that makes, you know, that makes the, the lifestyle pretty nice. Yeah. And, you know, we all, we have a small team, but we've been doing this a long time. I mean, people don't realize that our magazines are closing in on 20 years old now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, we have our system down pretty well. Yeah. And then, you know, the neat thing is it, it allows me the freedom to pursue some of the other journalistic pursuits that I want to work on. So I've always, I always seem to have a book in the, in the work somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a believer for the most part in letting books draw out. I, I don't write, honestly, I don't write books for my ego. I write my, I write books for my living. And, uh, if I have something I, that I, that I want to put out there that I think might be, you know, important to people, and then I'll try to put it out there in a, in a meaningful way. But I also learned a long time ago that when I was a freelance magazine journalist and publishing a lot of articles and a lot of photos, especially in the fly fishing media, but I also learned early that, you know, if you want to make a living at this, you better write for anybody that'll pay. <laughs> and so, you know, I've written for everything from, from dog magazines and wing shooting magazines to culinary magazines and, you know, wine and food. I mean, you know, I've written all kinds of stuff. Nice. And, uh, but I learned a long, long time ago that as a journalist, you just do not have the luxury of sitting back and patting yourself on the back when something gets published. Right. Because the nanoseconds you start thinking that way, Somebody else is ahead of you. They've, they've sold the same idea you wanted to sell. And so you just have to keep, you know, you have to keep churning out the work. And I'm a big believer in doing it, you know, meeting a contract to the, to the letter 
and turning in the work on time and the way that's supposed to be turned in and then moving on to the next project. Yep. Yeah, that's good. And what is your, um, so thinking about, you know, just steelhead fishing in general, I, I've just recently, I was, uh, trying to think about putting a trip together on the North Umpqua and do you have a, uh, you know, what do you consider as your home river? I know you, ta- you talked a lot about steelhead or summer steelhead, but yeah, it's funny because, uh, up until just the last, I mean, I shouldn't say it's not my home river anymore, but I spent by far the majority of my hours on the North Santiam river. Oh, okay. And the interesting thing about the North Santiam is like every other river above Willamette Falls, it never had a native run of summer steelhead. Mm-hmm. All the rivers above, all the rivers in the Willamette system that today have summer run steelhead never had a history of native summer run steelhead. That's because, well, it, before all the dams went in, the Willamette Valley was one giant floodplain. And during the, uh, the, the spring and early summer and winter, of course, the, the, the valley was just chuck full of water. And Willamette Falls at that time of year did not present an impassable barrier to anadromous fish. So winter run steelhead and Chinook salmon evolved to, in, 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 to, to establish populations in this valley. But summer run steelhead, which have a different life history, they'd be running up the river you know, during July, August, September, October. Well, they never evolved populations up here because when the later in the year, when the when the river drops to lower levels, the Willamette Falls simply presented too much of a migratory right. barrier. Yeah. So all those rivers have these populations of summer and steelhead that are hatchery produced and established in the early 1970s. And it's interesting because you know now we're coming up against the the, in, the in threatened and endangered species act with the Willamette River's native winter steelhead. Right. Uh, but at least, and I always say this, at least in these rivers. They did not ever superimpose a hatchery run of summer steelhead on top of a native run of summer steelhead. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they may be superimposed on native winter steelhead, but at least they're not superimposed on top of native summer steelhead. And whatever the problems may be, one thing to keep in mind about these rivers in the Willamette Valley is that in a lot of cases, the majority of their traditional winter steelhead spawning gravel is above the dams that have no fish passage. So none of the dams on, on mm-hmm. the... Uh, on the North Santa Yam have any fish passage. None of the dams on the South, you know, the dam on the South Santa Yam has no fish passage. Right. So, you know, so you're, you, you've already locked up an awful lot of what used to be winter steelhead spawning gravel. Hmm. So that brings up the debate of, you know, should we still be stocking summer run steelhead above Willamette Falls? And uh, there's, you know, there's arguments to and from or to and for. And of course I've always recognized that I've certainly benefited from it personally. I mean, yeah. I've caught, good Lord, I have no idea how many steelhead over the course of the last 35 seasons yeah. up here. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I've certainly been a beneficiary of that hatchery program. Sure. And, uh, and of course, so is the local economy on these rivers, on these, in these small towns up there. Hmm. But, uh, you know, we've, we've entered an age where, you know, the, the debate is, is uh, certainly worth having in terms of what rivers, if any, are appropriate for hatchery steelhead. But I think as fly anglers who enjoy fishing and catching fish, we have to be a little bit careful because in terms of a little bit careful of what we wish for, because quite frankly, when you look at native populations, if you all of a sudden tomorrow eliminated every single hatchery program for summer steelhead anywhere in the Northwest, I'm not sure we'd have many places left we could legally fish because native escapement, for example, in the rivers of the tributaries of the Snake River and the tributaries of the Columbia, there's not much native fish left. No. You go to the Imnaha, you go to the Grand Ron, it's rare to catch a native. And if you do, you can't even be sure it's a native anymore because it might just be a hatchery fish that wasn't fin clipped. Exactly. And so, you know, I think we have to be a little bit careful what we wish for. There may come a time where we simply aren't fishing for steelhead anymore just for the benefit of trying to recover native populations. The other side of that coin is if you disappeared all of the hatchery steelhead tomorrow, how long would it take for, for example, how long would it take for the native steelhead populations in the Grand Ron, in, in yeah. the Imnaha? How long would it take for them to rebound to sustainable levels? Yeah, take a while. Who knows? Yeah. We, we don't have we don't have that answer, you know. No, no, that's good. So I guess getting back to that, um, the start of that question there. So you're so the North Sandham you, you spent a lot of time on, and obviously yeah, you have obviously some books because on the, the North Umpqua as well. Yeah, you know the North Sandham. I mean, literally thirty minutes from my desk to in my waders in one of my favorite pools. No, so it's pretty cool. hard to beat that. That's cool. And you know, for many many years, my pattern has been you know get up before dark drive up to the river, fish two pools, be back at my desk before 10. Yeah. Yeah. And which is pretty handy. That know? is cool. No. That's, and, and yeah. I think the, the river I've spent the second most amount of time on, it'd probably be equally divided between the lower Deschutes and the North Umpqua. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the North Umpqua I've, I've always been fascinated by, I mean, it's just a, 
it's unique. I mean, it's it's there, there's another not another river like it. It's also iconic, and uh, it's one of those rivers. I tell people it, it's like the Henry's Fork of trout fishing. If you're a fly angler and you love fishing dry flies for trout, no matter where you live, someday you've got to fish the Henry's Fork. Yep. If you're a steelhead angler and you love swinging flies for steelhead, at some point you have to fish the North Umpqua. That's right. It's that's just right. a unique. It's a unique fishery. Yeah, that's cool. With a, with a lot of uh, you know really interesting characters that have have sort of honed their careers up there. Yeah, huh. no, that's good. I wasn't thinking of the North CNEM, you know, when we going in uh, going into this uh, this interview here. Though, so I'm glad you brought that up, and definitely I've I've fished that river a couple of times, and yeah, it's definitely of the two CNEMs. It's it's the you know the more natural one, definitely. The, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the one with probably less hatchery fish, but okay. Well, cool. and if you know you you swing through if you swing through some of the pools up on the North CNEM, you you know you're 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 swinging through glass clear water as pretty as it can be, yeah. you know, and, and it's a true, you know, and you're talking about a time of year, you know, June, July, August, how can you beat it? Oh yeah. Fishing in a t-shirt. So, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> and, no, it's you know, funny. and then as far as, as far as winter steelhead fishing, you know, I, uh, there was many years I'd beat myself up from December through March, you know, and then, uh, after over the years, I, especially when I got my first pointing dog, then I decided hmm. that I would much rather follow the, the tail end of a pointing dog around the chucker country than freeze to death standing in a river in January. So, Oh yeah. <laughs> so I don't fish and I, I don't do any steelhead fishing until after the chucker season ends at the end of January. Oh, okay. And yeah. even then I, you know, these days my, I limit my, and it seems to over the years I've compressed my winter steelhead fishing down more and more to one place and one time. And that's the North Umqua during March. Okay. Yep. That's I mean, it. The buds are on the, the buds are on the trees and you get a sunny day and you yeah. know, the water, if you get the water at a good level, I mean, good. it's pretty pleasant. Good. Yeah. I might, uh, maybe I'll run into you over on the river. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> hoping to get over there. So, uh, cool. And, um, so just thinking about more, uh, you know, back to the books and publications and blogging. I mean, you could throw all this, these, you know, things in there. I mean, wh- where do you see this going? You, you've been in it for, you know, a long time. I mean, things are changing obviously with, you know, things going out and do you see like over the next 10 or 20 years, what's your, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I mean, it's interesting when you start reading the the data about uh, print media, you know, there seems to be a bit of a resurgence right now. And uh, there's there's both uh, empirical data and then there's actual studies going on in terms of print media. You know, empirically, I think there's a lot of us who have decided, you know, I'd just rather hold a book or hold a magazine than, than hold a tablet. Yeah. And uh, so we're seeing, you know, we see a lot of that. And and then in terms of some of the, the studies being done within the industry, you know, there seems to be a bit of a, of a resurgence in the interest in print media. The, the trick always with, with print magazines, well, I mean any media really, it's how do you convince the advertisers who are by and large paying your bills and allowing you to exist, how do you convince them of the efficacy of, of uh, promotional programs, marketing programs that include print media? Hmm. And that's always the battle. And uh, it, within the fly fishing industry, we run into the whole gamut. I suppose every industry does. We run into this, the, the companies that are very in tune with the research that's going on and how they should market their product and we run into people that don't even know what the word demographic means <laughs> and you know so so we have to work with all all kinds but uh, you know i i mean i think that one of the things that we uh, learned a lot from was the recession that started in 2008 which uh, put a pretty big hit on the on the on fly fishing print media i mean all of a sudden everybody's ad revenues were down and uh, you know the one thing about fly fishing is it's it's arguably not really expanding a lot it's just kind of aging a little bit, you know? Um, so one of the challenges is how do you make fly fishing bigger? You know, how do you get more people involved? Um, and then, uh, how do you recruit those people to your brand? Um, but you also have to keep in mind, you know, who your, who your base is. And for our magazines, you know, empirically, at least we seem to attract, uh, the, the fly angler that's from his or her mid thirties up till, you know, eighties. And, you know, whereas one of the other magazines, the Drake, for example, seems to be the, the magazine that really appeals to the 20 something fly angler. Right. And you can't try to be everything, you know, you can't try to be everything to all people. So we really have, I think we've done a pretty good job of, of sticking to our brand, always trying to improve, but never trying to extend our reach beyond what we're capable of. And, uh, when it comes to, uh, what happened in 2008, what we learned from that was that our subscribers really are a pretty steady group. They, 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 renew at a high rate and they love our product. Um, and if we just keep doing that, you know, giving them what they want and refining it and always trying to make it better, uh, then we're probably on the right track because 
you know, now we're, we're 10 years later and uh, our subscriber rates really weren't uh, decimated like, like we had thought they might be at the beginning of the recession. So, so that helped a lot, you know, and then with book publishing, what I've seen in the last, you know, number of years is that there are lots of fly fishing titles coming up out now. I mean, lots of them. I, as a, as an editor, I, I'm kind of in tune to this because I get review copies of everything. And for a while there, you know, it was, it was kind of hard to, uh, convince a publisher to, you know, the, the fly fishing press, it was kind of a hard sell to get them to publish books, but there's two things going on with that. It's not just that all of a sudden everybody's buying fly fishing books. It's that printing has changed in that these publishers can print, uh, if not on demand, almost on demand, they can do, they can do small print runs. Uh, much smaller than they used to be able to and still be profitable. So publishers are able to say, you know, hey, if I can sell 2,000 copies of that book, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. As opposed to the old days where, you know, the model was I'm going to run a print run of 4,000 and then I'm going to try to make this book so good that we're going to reprint it again and again and again. And uh, that model doesn't necessarily apply to all publishing projects now. Some of the publishers, it seems, are are really more interested in, you know, let's print one run and, and make our money on that and move on to the next book. Yeah. So it's a little bit different model. It's a model that, you know, that, that, uh, authors honestly need to be aware of need to, and sometimes be aware of one of the things about writing a fly fishing book, you know, for some people it may feel good to do it, but I always tell would be authors that before you dive into that fly fishing book, consider the investment of time versus what you're going to actually make on the book. Cause you're not going to make much. And you're going to put a lot of hours into it yeah. and uh, you'll probably make a lot and most people would make a lot more money putting the same amount of hours into magazine writing. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, it's an interesting evolving industry, you know, the, the print industry. And in particular, from my perspective, the, the fly fishing print industry is certainly evolving fairly rapidly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, that's, I mean, just thinking about the getting into the fly fishing industry, you know, I think, the the more the more people I talk to, that seems to be always the take home message is that you, you better not be getting into this industry for uh, for the money because you know it's it's not you're not gonna you know that's not gonna get you through it. You got to have that passion, otherwise you know it's yeah. not gonna happen. So yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, and that's one of the nice things that that this sport has brought to me is it's allowed me to make a living in my passion. You know. Yeah. And uh, but you know the other thing is and and you know if there's any uh, budding outdoors writers out there listening to this, they really should take this to heart. It's important to be diverse. It's important to diversify, you know, as a writer, as a, as a journalist, as a photographer, it's really, really tough to make any kind of living just as a fly fishing photographer, fly fishing writer. In fact, you're not going to, (laughs) you better have a real job to back you up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, for example, my, my last two books had nothing to do with fly fishing. And, uh, that's because I believe in, you know, in being a little bit diverse, you know, and then try to branch out into other subjects. And when I talk to some of our, some of our best young contributors that, that, uh, I've developed in, in a way and, and, uh, people that are just turned into great photographers and very solid writers, you know, I've always tried to encourage them, you know, you're, you're so good at what you do that you should consider branching out and trying to do what you do in other genres. You know, what else are you interested in? What else, what, what you mm-hmm. might want to, might want to learn about? Mm-hmm. What else do you want to photograph and write about? You know, there's magazines for all those things too. So, yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's important to, to embrace, you know, the diversity of your talents a little bit if you're a photographer or a writer. Hmm. That's, that's a great tip. Yeah. And that was a question I had just on, you know, helping, how could people get started on some of this stuff? So that's a good. Well, and I guess the other, the other part of that is, you know, if you, if you're going to try to be a fly fishing writer or photographer, number one, be awfully good at what you do. That sure helps. You know, I mean, there's a, I I deal with a lot of bad writing and a lot of cases I deal with a lot of bad writing from people who the general public would never believe are that bad of writers, but Behind every good writer, there's a great editor. Is, huh. is, is the old the old saying, you know? Is that how? And, so is that how it works? So you've got somebody that comes in and they've got some some stuff that's just that's not great, and you you can take that and make it into a, a workable piece of work. Well, that's yeah. I mean, that's editing. You know, hopefully you don't do too much of that. Much of that. Hopefully, you know, we we've gotten to the point where when I first started with with these magazines, we had to deal with a lot more of that. But you yeah. know, over the years, we've we've refined down to you know a a, 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 a host of excellent contributors who are good at their craft. And if you're good at what you do and also professional with what you do, I'm going to give you more assignments. And I think any editor would say the same thing. Yeah. Make my job easy and I'm going to work with you a lot more. Yep. 
No, I, I, uh, come from my perspective, I think there's, you know, the other way to look at this too, is that, you know, maybe you're just not a good writer and you need to just do something else. I mean, from my own perspective, I, I think that I was, you know, never really a, a great writer and I kind of got into, try, you know, writing and blogging and, and just, and eventually got into this podcast thing, which is mm-hmm. you know, an audio way. And I just realized that I'm, I think a lot better at this, uh, this audio thing that I am at writing, you know, and I'm right. Exactly. Get, and yeah. And, lot, you know, so, yeah. And they're, and they're both, you know, both of those genres are practice skills. You can't get better at your fly casting unless you practice. You can't get better at your golf swing unless you practice. Mm-hmm. You can't get, you can't become a better orator or interviewer or writer unless you practice. Yep. You start with a fundamental set of skills and then you apply those skills with a lot of practice. Yeah, for sure. People tend to forget that part of it sometimes. Yep. Yeah. It takes, uh, yeah, it takes a lot of, a lot of time and to get to that level. So you mentioned a couple of books. So, so the birds of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, that one. And then, uh, the most recent one is, uh, called Oregon beaches, a traveler's oh, yeah. companion. Yeah. yeah. I, saw, I saw both of those. Yeah. That's what I saw those two when I was going through before this, uh, before our interview here. And I kind of was like, Whoa, yeah. Cause I mean, yeah, birding, that's awesome. I didn't realize you were kind of doing all sorts of stuff. That's cool. Yeah. Well, you know, that one was interesting because I kind of got talked into it from a friend of mine who's my co-author on that thing. And, and then it turned out that uh, I'd made one miscalculation. My friend was a great bird watcher. I'm a professional journalist. Guess who ended up doing most of the work? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but you know, it turned out it turned out pretty good. And and that book actually led directly to the Beaches book because I was over on the jetty at Newport one March trying to photograph some different species of birds for the bird book and sitting there freezing and pondering things. And it occurred to me, you know, I wonder if anybody has ever written a guidebook to Oregon's beaches. Yeah. You know, all of them. And nobody had. No way. Which I couldn't believe, you know. So I you know, ended up doing Crazy. it myself and yeah, probably 140, 140 beaches, you know, Jeez. well, <laughs> you got it in before the, uh, the big tsunami hits and got that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Well, so you now, uh, John, just looking at your, you know, your life again, we've talked about a ton of stuff here and I think, you know, on all these subjects we can go off for a long time, but I love yeah. to get back into the history of it because, you know, just thinking about like your history and, you know, kind of how you got to where you are. I mean, is there like a turning point or something that happened to you in your life that kind of, I mean, you said from the beginning, I mean, were you talking seven years old or in that range when you started fishing the Henry's for it? Yeah, that was huge. You know, the, the, the formative years for me were so big because of how I grew up. I mean, I grew up in the outdoors as an outdoors kid and, you know, and, and my, my dad and, and my uncle and my cousins, you know, they were, they were all fly anglers and uh, all wing shooters. And, you know, so I just grew around and grew up in that environment. And uh, that was, that was pretty critical, you know, and I, I do remember, you know, when I went to, to college, the University of Oregon, um, I kind of had an idea that, that I wanted to uh, major in journalism. And of course they have a excellent school of journalism at the University of Oregon, but I'd come out of high school, you know, having done this, the, you know, the school paper and all that stuff. But when I was at, when I was at Oregon, you have to specialize within that school of journalism. And I ended up picking two specialties. One of them was public relations. And my senior year, they had some recruiters come around to uh, interview those of us who were, were going to graduate from the public relations discipline. And I, uh, the, the first interview I had was with a representative of Dow Chemical. Hmm. And I thought to wow. myself, wow, man, if, if, does this mean, <laughs> does, does having a degree in public relations mean that my entry level job is moving back to the Midwest to work for Dow Chemical? Jeez. And more that, you know, that was an eye opener to me. And I thought, I, I don't want to do that. You know, so, and ultimately what happened was when I got out of school, I took a uh, part-time PR job with Caddis Manufacturing, Bob Houston and his brother Dave, who created and and manufactured Caddis float tubes. And also at the same time, their factory produced a line of cedar dog beds. You know, Bob, Bob was very, is a very innovative thinker, you know. Hmm. And uh, so I did a lot of their publicity work for them. And, you know, and I just, I always got along great with Bob. He's just great. And at the same time, I was working at the fly shop in Salem, you know, and that lasted and through those years, you know, even though you're, you know, you're just scratching for a living doing all that stuff, but I had a lot of irons in the fire. So, you know, I was also, I I actually published my first article in a fly fishing magazine when I was a freshman in college. And that was for uh, Dick Soretti's fly tire magazine. And, you know, it was only a couple of years old at the time. His, His magazine was only a couple of years old at the time. But uh, I ended up uh, being on good terms with the whole succession of editors of that magazine. So I published a lot of work with them over the years. But also, 
you know, tried to publish with anybody I could. And, and so I'd been doing a fair amount of, of magazine writing even back then and just kept doing that. And uh, that that uh, branched out into um, some book contracts with Frank Amato Publications. And, uh, you know, that led to, uh, you know, just, just sort of if you, if you stay on top of the work and, and try to learn how to be professional about it, it, it sort of leads to more and more opportunities. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day I was at a, uh, a fly fishing show up in Washington and Steve Probasco walked up to me and I'd never met him before. I knew who he was, of course, because he'd done a lot of writing as well. And uh, he told me about this new magazine that they had, they were launching, and this was back in '99. And would I be interested in contributing? Because he'd seen my work as well. And I said, "Oh yeah, I appreciate you, you know, come up and, and asking me. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see what you got going." And so I started writing for them pretty regularly. And then in uh, 2005, they launched their third title, Eastern Fly Fishing, or were about to launch it, but they recognized that one guy, Steve Probasco, wasn't going to be able to to handle the workload of producing three print magazines and, you know, being the editor in chief of three print magazines. So, (laughs) and this was a direct result. And they told me this, this was a direct result of my professionalism and, you know, and and the the level of my work as a freelancer that they came to me to see if I would like to come on board as the managing editor. And, uh, you know, that was kind of a a watershed moment because I, you know, I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it. And, so it became actually the the first time in my life that I sort of had what you might call a real job. Yep. And uh, <laughs> and then some years later, when uh, Probasco decided he you know he's kind of done it long enough that then I ended up you know inheriting the whole editor in chief thing from him for all the magazines, and that's where we are now. There you go. And you know it's just it's a great little company. You know it's a little uh, privately held company, and and I work with great people. And there's only a few of us, but you know we awesome. we're all yeah it's it's it's, it's fun. Yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great magazine. I've always loved the, you know, some people, you know, not complaining about that magazine, but just about, you know, giving the secrets away and the whole online thing, you know, telling people where to fish. I mean, that's one of your things you're highlighting, you know, cool, we do. cool places to fish. And it's, it's, it's really, it's a great magazine for that, you know. You know, we, and we do have our filters. I mean, if, if I have to be a little bit careful, I mean, there's certainly some little teeny tiny native trout creeks out there that don't need to be published anywhere, you know. Yeah. But by the same token, we're not aware of a single time in 20 years where an article we have run has caused a big rush of people to show up at somebody's, you know, favorite river or lake. So, yeah, I think, I think what happens, a lot of us, we read the articles, we file it away and we think, you know, I'm going to go give that a try next year, you know, or something like that. Well, and the bottom line is on a lot of the stuff, I just had a Rob Rice who did a Skeena basin, uh, in episode 10 and, um, Mm. and he talked, he knows a lot about all the big rivers up there, you know, the Babby and everything else, but he says he loves, you know, there's hundreds of these tiny little coastal tribs that maybe only have a few steelhead in them, but you know, or whatever it is, smaller numbers and you know, nobody fishes them. And if you, if you, if you're willing to hike and bushwhack, you know, and I think that's the case in a lot of places around the country. It is. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. Well, let's see. So I've still got, I think we're, uh, we're about halfway through, uh, some of the questions. I think we might have to do a lightning round here at the end to okay. get through Fair some enough. of these, but, uh, one thing I wanted to get into, you know, just on the, you know, kind of steelhead fishing, you know, just as far as tips and things like that, do you have a, you know, any tips or either steelhead fishing or, or even fly tying that, that could help somebody kind of, uh, maybe tie a better fly or catch their first steelhead? Well, I mean, as far as steelhead fishing is concerned with a fly rod, first off, I think people tend to get a little intimidated by it, but I think the beginners need to realize that it's actually, when you're fishing the traditional technique, which is swinging flies on a floating line, you know, for summer run fish or on a sinking line for winter run fish. But the fact of the matter is it's the simplest technique that you could possibly imagine. I mean, we, we spend our, our, most of us grow up being trout anglers, drifting dry flies for trout. That's how most of us learn to fly fish. And the first thing you learn when you're drifting dry flies for trout is you've got to eliminate drag, eliminate drag, eliminate drag. Mm-hmm. Well, with steelhead, you want the fly to drag. Mm-hmm. You know, that's pretty easy. You just pitch it over there and it drags back to here. And you take two steps and you do it again. So the technique is decidedly simple. And, you know, you can complicate it all you want. We can teach people how to mend this way, mend that way, yep. do that, do this. But the bottom line is this. You know, there, I, I, years ago, I did just enough guiding to cure myself of it. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the, the woman that I had who couldn't catch 30 feet but she would listen to me. Her husband wouldn't, he wouldn't listen, No. but she would throw that fly 30 feet. And I would just say, don't do anything. Just hold on to the rod. Well, she landed three steelhead on the North Sandyham that day behind her husband who could cast a hundred <laughs> feet, but wanted to mend the line every, every, every nice. two seconds. 
weeks, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's a lesson there. there. There's nothing complicated about the technique. Just pitch it down and across, let it swing back to your side, take two steps downstream and do that again. The, the trick is where to do that. Yeah. And so the real trick with steelhead is just learning to identify good steelhead water, learning to identify their holding water. And there's a, you know, a couple ways to do that. I mean, most of our rivers don't change a whole lot from year to year in terms of where the, the steelhead like to be. And steelhead are very much creatures of habit. If, if a steelhead this year finds this particular boulder to be a great place to hold in front of, then unless the river changes a whole bunch, it's probably going to be a good place year in and year out. And that's why certain pools and certain places in certain pools become really well known by, by people that fish those places a lot because they're consistent holders. They're the, the garden spots, so to speak. But, you know, for, for beginners, you look where other people are fishing. That's kind of pragmatic, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, pretty, pretty simple. But you also learn maybe to recognize what kind of water to look for. And, you know, I've boiled it down to this. If you're fly fishing for, for summer steelhead particularly mm-hmm. and you're swinging flies, just go out and look for water that's somewhere in depth from about the top of your knees, maybe to the top of your hat. And that's flowing at about the pace you can walk. So, in other words, not too shallow, not too deep not too fast, not too slow, just everything in between. And, you know, you layer on top of that, that it, you know, generally needs to be kind of within the main current structure of a river. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to find fish hanging out in the frog water eddies and that kind of thing. But, you know, so I I think, you know, once people kind of learn that it's where you put that fly that matters, and then it's the mindset. If you are an angler who just loves to do, just loves to catch, likes to do a lot of catching, you might not make a good steelhead angler. No. Because generally speaking, with steelhead fly fishing, you're not going to do a lot of catching. You're going to do a whole lot of fishing and, and then a little bit of catching. And you have to be okay with that. You have to, at some, at some level, you need to accept that. You need to, you need to embrace it. You need to, need to enjoy the fishing. Mm-hmm. And you enjoy that fishing for any number of reasons, certainly one of which is the, the, elect, the electric way in which a steelhead grabs a swinging fly. You know, there's nothing like it in fly fishing. The, no. the, the line's already tight. The flies, you got a direct connection to the fly in a, in a big brawling river and 10 pounds of chrome grabs that thing. I mean, it's just electrifying. Yeah. The other part of it is, you know, you just have to learn to enjoy being out there, learning to enjoy being part of that river. I mean, there's few genres of fly fishing where you feel so immersed in, in the ecosystem because you're so unobtrusive, essentially. You know, you're not creeping through the brush and sneaking through the trees to sneak up on a trout. You're just sort of yeah. in the water up to your waist and just wading down the river. Right. And you don't have to focus so hard. You know, with, when I grew up on the Henry's Fork, man, talk about intense fishing. I mean, you had to focus. I mean, you had to hit feeding lanes that are inches wide and moving, Jeez. you know, I mean, just, just really brutal stuff. I mean, it's a different kind of fishing, but with steelhead, it's the opposite of that. You know, you just pitch the fly over there down and across and look at the birds. Yeah. You know? That's it. And then the other thing, you, the other thing you got to do is, you know, you, and it's hard for a beginner until they start hooking a fish or two. But at some point you got to believe, you know, you have to have faith. And I always tell people what's really important is you got to believe in the last cast of the day with the same faith you believe in the first cast of the day and everyone in between. And every time you throw that fly out there, you have to tell yourself that cast is going to hook a fish. And then you tell yourself that, you know, 500 times a day. That's right. And one or two times, hopefully it works out. (laughs) Yeah, that pretty much that pretty much sums it up. You gotta, it's it's all about persistence. It is, and it you know, but I, I think the bottom line is that a lot of beginners that I've talked to over the years, they are a little intimidated by steelhead fishing, but they shouldn't be because the technique is super simple. Yeah, you don't have to worry about fly choice. Just pick something you like, and then find the right water to put it in. Yeah, that's it. Cool. So, um, so do you have a few, I mean, I guess maybe you've talked about some of your, your mentor mentors already, but do you have any, uh, mentor or two that's really helped you get to where you're at? Anybody we haven't talked about yet? Well, in terms of fly tying, the, the biggest influence on my own fly tying initially was Dave McNeese. Mm-hmm. No question. You know, one of the most artistically gifted fly tires you'll ever meet. Um, one of the big influences on my own fishing was, was Forrest Maxwell who mm-hmm. I spent many, many years, you know, we spent years palling around all over the West in, in pursuit of steelhead, in, ter- in pursuit of trout, and in pursuit of chuckers. Mm. So we've covered the miles together. Um, you know, in terms of uh, a literary career, you know, for me, it was, it's been more about um, some of the uh, authors from, from the old days that I've enjoyed reading over the years. But I certainly had a couple 
you know, professors in college that were uh, that were pretty meaningful to me, you know, that I've remembered oh, yeah. uh, some of the lessons that they, they got over it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Dave McNeese for fly tying, you know, Forrest for angling. I mean, there's certainly a lot of anglers and fly tires out there that I appreciate and who've had have their have had their impact on my own my own angling and tying life but you know in terms of the big influences yeah, yeah. there you go nice nice yeah and i'll yeah. uh yeah i'll provide find some uh do a little research on my own here and provide some links hopefully to to some of the folks you've talked about and some of these you know big names and provide some of that so uh so yeah if you had to think about steelhead flies we're on that subject you've got two flies that you can pick and use for the end till the end of time which which flies are they well, the first one's going to be a fly that I call the spawning purple, uh-huh. and uh, that's a fly that I created it as a a, uh, a lighter dressed, more castable version of Dave McNeese's hairwing spawning purple that he invented in the late '70s. So I I just co-opted his name and and changed the materials, and that was in 1985, I think. Oh, perfect! And over the course of all the years, that one fly has probably accounted for at least 50 percent of all the steelhead I've ever put on the bank. Hmm. And the reason for that is because I probably fished it about 50% of the time. Yep. So there's a direct correlation there. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Now, as far as that second fly, you know, that one, I can't even give you a good answer because it's going to be the flavor of the month with me. I mean, I'm, I I just get fascinated by, you know, the, for example, when I was, I mentioned that parmachine bell. I got yep. all infatuated with catching steelhead on that parmachine bell, so I just fished it all summer. And also during the research for that book, I'd done so much homework on on John Ben, the famous a uh, fly dresser from San Francisco who'd basically been forgotten. Uh, he had a fly named after his daughter called the Ben's Martha. And I enjoyed fishing that for a whole month. Mm. You know, I just, that's the only fly I fished for one month. And, oh, cool. You know, so, so really that second fly that you want me to name, it's going to be just the flavor of the month with me. But again, you know, I, I believe that since the steelhead is not going to care whether that fly has a green butt or not, you know, I'm, it's an invitation to me to fish just a wide litany of flies, yep. whatever catches my fancy on any particular day. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, um, so for, you know, just thinking about, uh, again on books and, you know, what you've done, uh, you know, what, what do you think is, you know, you're, if you had to say something you're, you know, I mean, you've done a lot of stuff that you're most proud of or something that, you know, maybe in a 50 or a hundred years, something that you'd like to be remembered for. Is it, is it a book? Is it a, a magazine? What, what, what is it for you? Well, probably a couple of things, I guess. I mean, you know, this, this last fly fishing book, classic steelhead flies, I'm happy I had the opportunity and the, and the, uh, you know, the, the, the willpower to dig into so much history because you take a guy like John S. Ben, who was the most influential fly tire and fly angler in San Francisco in, you know, from eight, from the 1870s through eight, you know, till his death in the, in early 1900s. And he'd been forgotten. The fly fishing world had utterly forgotten him. If you'd mentioned his name to anybody other than Trey Combs, they'd have said, who are you even talking about? That's crazy. So I'm, I'm actually, you know, that's one of the things that I'm really happy to have been able to, to maybe at least make a few more people. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm well aware that, that fly fishing books, most of them are not widely read, but at least it's in print now, you know, and at least that story of John Ben is in print. So I'm pretty happy about that. And, you know, and when it, when it comes to the rest of it, you know, I guess if I, when it's all said and done 50 years from now, if someone can, can pluck one of my books off the shelf and find something valuable and useful in there, then that's, that really would make me happy. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's kind of where it's at. The, the thing I get the, the biggest, you know, joy out of honestly is these days, at least probably for the last decade or so is when I go do one of the shows, like a fly tying show or something, and you get a bunch of kids, you know, to yeah. me, there's a, there's a chance to, uh, impress upon a young mind, something that might last the rest of their lives. Yeah. You know, you might, you might be the part of the, uh, part of the, the log cabin they're building in their mind. That's making fly fishing important, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if, if some of those kids end up getting as much joy and as much intrigue out of fly fishing through the course of their lives as I have, then, you know, then in a, in a way I've kind of done my job, I guess, or at least given a little something back. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, sure. I think as a as a journalist, you can't ask for much more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. No, it's it. Uh, I've got a couple of young kids uh, here, and well, as well. So I'm I'm always thinking about you know that that whole thing and how do I make sure that they're doing good stuff. I I saw a, uh, um, oh, I can't remember what it was. It was some quote online, something about 
you know, basically how do you keep a kid away from drugs and you teach him to fly fish. So he spends all of his money on fly fishing. Gear. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's and exactly so, right. Something like that. But I, I mean, you know, there is something to that, you know, you don't think about it, but I mean, you know, I know in my life I probably could have gotten into a lot more trouble if I didn't have, you know, some fun stuff to do like fishing and stuff like that. So absolutely. Uh, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I mean, some, something that, that, you know, one of the things that makes anybody interesting is when they have a deep passion for something. And, you know, I don't care what it is. If, if you're, if you have some deep passion that is just palpable, you know, when, when you meet somebody and their favorite thing comes up and they're just deeply passionate about it, that it's, that it's so palpable, you know, that makes that an interesting person yep. because they're so interested in something, you know, and, and I feel, I honestly, to, to be frank, I feel sorry for people that can't find something they're passionate about in life because I can't imagine going through life that way, yep. you know? So, so people like you and I, we might have a, an opportunity to help impart some of that passion in the youngster. And if we do that and, and it turns out that, you know, they end up loving fly fishing for the next 60 years, man, you know, more power to us and them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Awesome, John. Well, I, I'm about there. Uh, do you want to maybe give us, uh, you know, in the next six months, um, talk about, you know, you want to talk about what you have going, anything we can look for? Well, in terms of, I mean, no new books coming out, but, uh, I'm, I've got a couple in the works, obviously. I mean, I always, always got something in the works in terms of, in terms of books, but, uh, you know, my, my, uh, first half of the year is always pretty similar. I, I quit chasing my, my Weimaraners around the Chucker country at the end of January. I give myself a, a little bit of a, a break from driving around in February. And then I go start fishing the little black stone flies and the March Browns over in central Oregon. Nice. And, uh, yeah. And then, you know, so I, I kind of tie up some of my spring with, I mean, I love dry fly fishing. I always have, I grew up that way. So, you know, I go over to the middle to shoots and, and, uh, get in on those hatches because I lived in Bend for a number of years and, and I really learned to appreciate the, the fact that you can fish dry flies just about any month of the year over there. That's cool. And, uh, you know, and then come summer, I'm always hoping that there'll be enough fish in the Saniam that I can go entertain myself a little bit. There you go. Yeah. That's... Yeah. But, you know, and, Ever so slowly, I mean, uh, I, people ask me about this all the time, but back in, uh, it's been more than 15 years, I did a book called Spay Flies and D-Flies, and it was a, oh, yeah. a book about tying the traditional spay flies and about their history. But, uh, you know, in the, in, the year, in the years since that book came out, I made several trips to Scotland because the release oh, cool. of that book opened up, it opened up so many more lines of communication to me and, and therefore more lines of research. And I've got enough material now based on stuff we never put in that book because of space limitations and based on new stuff that I have that I can produce a book on space flies three times as big. And, uh, that's, that's coming along, you know, at a, some, somewhat of a snail space. Normally I like to crank out a book in, on a one year contract. Oh, this wow. one's more like about a 10 year contract, so. There you go. <laughs> but nice. it's, it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Good. That's we'll look forward to that. Good. So, yeah. and, and so, yeah, we've talked about a, a few of your books and things like that. Is there a place where people can find, you know, maybe all your resources or a good place to find you if they have questions or anything like that? Well, you know, I mean, you can always email me at, at my match the hatch address that's in the magazine. Um, I, you know, the, in terms of, uh, Public places, I always go to the uh, Eugene, or I'm sorry, the, the Oregon Fly Fishing and Fly Tying Expo, which is held in Albany. Uh, it was originally launched in Eugene a long, long time ago, and I've only missed one in 30-some oh, years. Oh, awesome. And what that event does, you know, we, we the fly tires sit down for two-and-a-half-hour shifts at tables, and people just come and watch and talk and, and uh, rap and ask questions. And so I really enjoy a chance, you know, if people want to show up there and, and uh, talk about stuff, I always enjoy that opportunity. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's that's a fun one. That's timely because we're uh, that's right around the corner. I'm actually going to be there uh, tying a few um, this year, so I'll look forward. Oh, to cool! Running yeah, into you and, and chatting. A Excellent. Yeah. Definitely. Yep. Great. All right. Well, that's uh, that's about all I have for you. Anything I missed, or want to? Maybe we could save it for the next next one we do. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like you said, Dave, I can. You know, I think we could probably do this all day long. So <laughs> I know, I know. I, lo I love the. You know, I love is the 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 history. You know, I, I've talked a lot about that. I mean, that's part of this show. It's a big part of it, just connecting the dots. And, and it was good to listen to you talk. And you know, I think I'm on the right track because you mentioned a number of people that I've I've either already interviewed or they're on my list of people that I'm trying to connect with. So I'm. I'm well, you know, it's interesting when we when we talk about the North Umqua, you know, I didn't I didn't bring up their names, but you know, guys like Frank Moore and Joe Howell, I mean, oh, yeah. they're just such fascinating people that they've just about got to be on your list, you know. And oh, yeah. 
I mean, Frank's 94 now, you know, and he's he's still one of those guys that when you shake his hand, you have to ask him to back off on his grip a little bit before no he kidding. breaks a bone or something. No <laughs> kidding. <laughs> and Joe, you know, Joe Howell, he for many years owned the Blue Heron Fly Shop right across from the, right across the highway from the river, you know, and and he was his, his shop was just a fixture, and and uh, he's just such an entertaining guy, and I've been telling him for many years. He's an artist as well, and I said, Joe, what you you need to do is you need to write a book, and you need to tell one of your great stories about each pool on the North Umpqua Flywater because he's got yeah. a story for every single pool. Wow. And then you need to illustrate that story with one of your pieces of artwork. And then you need to publish that. That's and uh, I've been on him for – so if you talk to him, Dave, you got to oh, get yeah. on him about that. Just tell him, hey, I got this great idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get on him for sure. Good stuff. All right, John. Well, I'll let you get back to it. I wanted to uh, you know, thank you for coming on and uh, just say thanks for everything you've done for you know, fly fishing and all the information. And uh, you know, I'm sure there's thousands of people out there that you've, you've helped uh, get into a fish. So I, I wanted to thank you for all that. Well, I appreciate that, Dave. Thank you. All right. So we'll, uh, we'll catch you soon and hopefully see you down at the show. Sounds good. All right. See you, John. Thanks, Dave. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash John Shuey. Please go to wetflyswing.com slash community to connect with a growing Facebook group at the Fly Fisher Society. We are continuing the conversation at, at the society. So stop in and say, what's up? Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hopefully seeing you on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.